Good morning, everybody. I want to welcome to everybody to Inside the North Side. Um, we have a special guest here today. Would you like to please introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, everyone. My name is Chris Varela. Welcome, Mr. Varela. Thank you very much. My honor. So, My how, yeah, so how about the Mastros? Oh, great, man. Uh, yeah, I was really encouraged that they won last night. They, uh, I had my, my doubts after game two, but um, they're showing a little bit of, of, of a spark here, and let's hope that they continue it. Yes, I hope so, too. Um, watching game one and two was just a, very, just, just a disaster. It, they weren't on their end game. Cole wasn't on his end game. Verlander was not the way he was supposed to be. I, um, as they were saying yesterday, it's a different city, a different vibe. Just, I hope, and it worked. It worked yesterday. They they got to them early. They found their weaknesses, and hopefully, it continues today. And we'll see the results. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I hopefully, think, come back home. I think tonight's game is going to be pivotal, pivotal, of course, because uh, well, we're pitching our bullpen mm-hmm. tonight. So, uh, you know, that's going to change, and obviously, it's going to change the course of the uh, the series mm-hmm. yeah. tonight. But at least, though, they're going to have to beat our best now to win the series, right? Exactly. You ever, you've heard that old saying, if they're going to beat you, at least let them beat you with your best out there. So, in other words, they're going to have to beat us now with Verland. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so hopefully with this bullpen game that's coming up, they'll see what we have in the bullpen. Hopefully that they come through and we'll um, hopefully get a good result. So, my win... My expectancy is for us to win. Yeah, me too. I hope they obviously I hope they they pull it out. And uh, last night, yeah, what I saw was they weren't hitting for the fences. They were more relaxed in their hitting. You know, play some fundamental baseball. Just just get make contact. Small ball. Yeah. How many strikeouts did they get last night? You know. Uh, I think Granky got. No, no. How did how many strikeouts did we have? Our oh on our side, our team. Who struck maybe out? Maybe like I think Bregman struck out. Yeah. Granky struck out. I think we maybe had like seven, eight strikeouts. Last I think, night? I think so. That many? Wow. It just seemed like in the other two games it seemed more. Yeah. I think they were so I guess wound up and they weren't really like you were saying, relaxed mm-hmm. and it got to them pretty early. Mm-hmm. So yesterday's game, or well, last night's game, they seemed more relaxed. Yeah. They seemed more focused. Yeah. I know Altuve was kind of upset that he didn't get the um, the lead earlier than he wanted to because I know he had popped it out into center field. But um, the team came through, and we won. So that's all we really needed. Hopefully that, um, like I said, we win these next, hopefully, two games and take it back home. Right, yeah, of course, of so. course, yeah. So today's episode is a, is a little different than usually what I do since um, it's usually by myself. and um, But before we get into today's subject, I want our special guest to uh, tell us a little bit about himself. Um, I'm a native Houstonian, third generation Houstonian, that is. And uh, I've always had a passion for history, love history. And uh, I've also had a passion for, for hearing legends and background of, of certain subjects in history. Mm-hmm. So um, because of that, uh, I love hearing ghost stories. Now, I don't 
believe in ghost stories. I don't really believe in ghosts. Uh, I've never really seen a ghost or anything like that. I've never really had anything really that I would say conclusively that it was paranormal, happened to me. But um, I love hearing history mesh with legends. It makes it more colorful, it makes it more interesting. And so because of that, I got into uh, running haunted tours here in Houston. I've been doing it now for several years. I used to do it with another company, but uh, about five years ago I left and went on my own. So I do it part-time. It's a, just a little hobby of mine. Mm -hmm. Make a little money on the side too. And uh, it kind of meshes my two interests. You know, one of my favorite talk shows at night is Coast to Coast AM. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it comes on late at night and they discuss the weird stuff, the, the different, the bizarre topics out there, UFOs, ghost stories, hauntings, that kind of thing. And I like hearing that. I've always enjoyed that kind of thing. And so uh, getting these haunted tours is something for me to, to mesh two interests of mine together. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Um, I know you have a booth. You've done booths at uh, Comic Palooza as well. And I know the crowd accepted you pretty well this year, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep, this last uh, May, we uh, I did I, I did a, a talk at, at Comic Palooza, a presentation of uh, some of the haunted sites that we visit on my tours, and I had a pretty good reception. Yeah, yeah, I noticed a lot of the audience was out there writing notes, and uh, yeah, they were engaged in the whole presentation. I didn't have a table this year, uh, but uh, I, but they invited me. Comic Palooza invited me to to come on and do a. a presentation and I've helped you out with uh, with some of the booths when you know you have to go and do this and that and um, yeah he, he had a really 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 good reception for this presentation it was really crowded nobody really had any seats I mean we had people standing against the wall and sitting down so it was very exciting to see that you know regardless of what you feel about it, if you believe in ghosts or you don't everybody has a, a, everybody loves to hear these stories you know, everybody has an opinion about them, but you know, of course, we're all going to pass away one day, so we all want to know what is out there. You know, we have a belief in God, but still, there is still that lingering question: What is out there? What's on the other side? What's on the other side? You know, we we hear it, when we, but you know, like I said, and so you know, we all have that. We all want to know what's going on, and we've all lost somebody in our lives. So we want to know, where did that person go to? Mm -hmm. That lingering question. So we all can relate to that. We can all relate to, to passing on and where it goes to. And so, of course, all of this ties into that. Mm -hmm. um, well, I do have a quick question for you. Um, I know that you don't believe in ghosts, and I know you do all these tours. Have you ever had a, um, what does it say, uh, like, Somebody coming to you in a dream, like a, a past family member that's passed away. Have you ever had somebody come to you in a dream and like speak to you or some kind of uh, story that went along with it and they talked to you or gave you some advice, something like that before? No, not really. Um, my father passed away uh, 12 years ago now. And uh, in those 12 years, I've had dreams of him a few times. Uh, but I don't recall ever conversing with him. My mother passed away uh, five years ago, 
and like her, like like my father, I've I've had dreams, just you know, brief dreams of her, but nothing nothing that they've come back and they've communicated with me, with. Interesting. Um, I've had several dreams like that. Really. Um, my grandfather passed away about four years ago, and my grandmother passed away about a year ago, and I've had dreams where they've conversed with me. It. It's really weird, weird stories, things like that wouldn't happen in real life, but they have talked to me or there's been some kind of actions in the story where it's affected me and I've seen them, I've gotten to talk to them. Um, do you have any idea what probably what that means? No, not really. Uh, what did they actually, what did they convey to you? Do you remember? Uh, I don't remember, but I know it was some kind of positive. So I know it was something positive and I would wake up and I would be kind of like in shock like it was real like it was a real dream sure, sure. but um sure yeah, I, mean, I had dreams like that before hmm. i tell you what now that now that i think about it i did have one incident very real and here's the thing about these haunted tours you know i uh, like i said i don't subscribe to the paranormal necessarily i don't you know but with that said some of some people on my tours have experienced stuff they have seen maybe an image or a ghostly figure, whatever, or they've heard something. And so, since I've been doing these tours, um, you kind of get a, you kind of develop another kind of alert, you know, kind of another sense. You kind of, you know, you kind of, you pay attention to more little subtle things that are going on around you. I do now, mm-hmm. you know, like if a light flickers, or if I hear something, you know, I, I start thinking, okay, well, is that paranormal or not? Mm-hmm. And um, one thing, one story that happened to me was uh, my mother passed away in 2012, or 2013. And she died uh, November the 1st. And my birthday is on November the 3rd. Mm -hmm. So on the anniversary of her death, I went to her gravesite. It It was on a weekend. It was on a Saturday, if I remember correctly. And... The next day, I was going to lecture at my church. I was, I was going to read. And so I took my reading with me that day to go visit mom and dad at the cemetery. And uh, it was the anniversary of her death. And I got there, and uh, I parked next to the gravesite. And um, I was just going over my reading, just kind of just going over for the next day on Sunday. And... I noticed at the corner of my eye, there was a balloon just rolling on the grass, mm-hmm. a little mylar aluminum balloon. It was without a string, and it had lost some of its helium, so now it was on the ground just kind of bouncing. I saw it at the corner of my eye and didn't think nothing of it, and I was in the car. I was parked in the car, still looking at my reading, and this balloon just kind of just casually just got blown over to mom and dad's gravesite. And it stopped right there on top of mom and dad. And so uh, I said, well, okay, let me go out there and take this off. At this point, I thought it was trash. I considered it as trash. Mm-hmm. So I got out of the car, got the balloon, and I'm getting chills right now as I'm saying this. It said, happy birthday to me. Or it said, happy birthday from us. <laughs> wow, because my birthday was going to be on the next day. 
uh, wow, that was that was yeah, that was a really touching moment. And uh, I still have the balloon. Mm -hmm. I took it home. We deflated it. Imelda and I put it on a frame. It's in our uh, middle room to this day. So yeah, it's there hanging up. Happy birthday from us. So I love hearing that story. That you it it gives me chills too just to think about it. it yeah. It's it's just such a a funny coincidence that you know you were there and that it somehow a balloon just came and right there and it pretty much was like telling your mother and father telling you happy birthday yeah it was uh and i i really didn't think about it then you know i just kind of got it and i went back to the car and it wasn't until a few minutes later i said you know were they trying to communicate with me were they trying to wish me happy birthday and uh yeah that was a good one that was a really cool one so the i, I guess you know I can interpret that as them communicating with me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have to come away with that conclusion. Yeah, I, I like I said, I, I love hearing that story. It's a really, really good story, really touching story. So, um, as we uh, end on the uh, very touching story, let's get into the uh, nitty gritty. Now, I know you, you're a big Beatles fan, and I know yeah. you, you love hearing the Beatles music. Um, before we start, Favorite album, favorite Beatle, favorite song? Wow, it's hard to say. Well, I, I guess, you know, my favorite album's got to be Revolver. Because that one there is, uh, that's where, to me, they grew up. That's where their music got, it was no longer, I guess, the, the boy band image. Although I never call them a boy band image. I think they, even their early stuff was really good. Mm -hmm. Very good, brilliant music. But Revolver, I think they, they took that step more. And... That album there, for me, I think set now much of what classic rock is today. A lot of the production that they did on that album is now what you know set the ground for how other bands would come into play. And that's when they were going through their "quote unquote" psychedelic phase too, as well. Yeah, yeah, they were they were getting into LSD and drugs and stuff like that, and they were being they were being more experimental in their music. Mm -hmm. They were you know setting up. You know, setting the, the, the stage, for, the groundwork for what we would hear other bands later on. It's amazing how much of an impact they've made in the 10 years that they were together. Mm -hmm. So many albums, so many songs have just affected countless genres, countless bands. It's, it's, it's quite amazing how mm -hmm. four guys from Liverpool pretty much turned music on its head. And I think it was, it was really because of the environment, too. I don't know if today that can be done anymore, Yuli. I don't know if, 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 if there'll be another Beatles band like that. Um, there's talent out there. There's talent like, like they were. But, you know, there has to be the recording industry, too, that would support that kind of talent and, and let it to flourish. And I don't know if, if in today's market they would allow to do that. I don't think so. Not anymore. Um, I know we've had quote unquote past bands that have been uh, labeled as the next Beatles, mm -hmm. like uh, Oasis, and um, I think they said the Arctic Monkeys. But there's n there will never be another band like the Beatles ever. I think so. And like you were saying with the recording industry and all that, there's a lot of bands and a lot of. Um, Producers just want to get music done and that's it. There's no really passion. There's quite a few that have that passion um, But not not passion like the Beatles did and George Martin did and 
with all the recording and they did at Abbey Road and everything, just the perfection that it went into it, I don't think that there's that love anymore for music. Yeah, I don't think the recording industry now wants to take a chance. No, they just want their they singles see a, they and see done. A, they see a packaged product and they want to stick with that. And they don't want to hear any kind of outside ideas and say, hey, let's take it a different way. Let's take music. Let's give it a chance. Let's try this idea and go with it. I don't think that kind of uh, entrepreneurship is there anymore. Pretty much the what they're called is like industry plants. Mm-hmm. That's what they're called, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but speaking about the Beatles, I know they've had a few of, um, theories and conspiracies about them. I know one of them is the uh, Paul is Dead theory. Can you give me a little more <laughs> info about that one? Yeah, that's one of my favorite urban legends in rock music. And... Uh, It was a theory that Paul McCartney died in November of 1966. That would have been right after they recorded, I believe, the Revolver album. And the story goes is that he died in a car wreck, got decapitated. And they immediately replaced him with a lookalike. And apparently this lookalike was at one a, a talent contest. So he had the demeanor and he had the, uh, the whole uh, musicianship of Paul McCartney down. His name is Billy Shears. That's supposedly the legend. Mm-hmm. Or William Campbell, I think it was. William Campbell. But Billy Shears was a nickname of his that came on. And so supposedly the story goes they kept this a secret. And then in 1969, there, there, there came this rumor from a college student who called a radio station mm-hmm. and said, hey, you know, I've been researching this and I think Paul McCartney is dead. And I can see the, their album covers and I can hear their music and they're giving clues to the fans that Paul McCartney is dead and that we've replaced him with a lookalike. So that whole thing started about 1969 when the Beatles were breaking up. Mm-hmm. Right when Abbey Road came out, uh, this whole rumor of his death started circulating and so now it has grown into this urban legend that if you look at their album covers after revolver and you hear their music you can hear clues of his death speaking about some of the album covers i know that i don't know if you heard but rubber soul is actually a a hint towards uh, paul mccartney's death Uh, they say that since the album the cover looks deformed you know distorted a little bit Mm -hmm. That what the Beatles are looking at, they're looking at Paul in the grave, and that the lookalike is looking at him. That's, right. that's one of them I've heard. Uh, I know one of them is the um, revolver, actually, too, has some sort of hints. I think in his ear, in Paul McCartney's ear, there's um, something. I forgot what it was, but I know revolver has something. <coughs> Sergeant Pepper is a really good one that has some hints toward it. If you look on the album cover of the... Um, uh, was it the clay models or mm-hmm. statues the of the wax Beatles? Model, the the wax, wax models, yeah. Ringo has his hand on McCartney, and they're looking at the grave. So that that's really interesting. And I know the main one is Abbey Road, of course. And um, what they say is that if you if everybody knows the Abbey Road cover, it's very iconic. You know, you could you everybody knows when you walk down the street. And those those little white lines, you want to imitate Abbey Road. I know I do that, but um, the story, the legend is that 
Lenin, he's dressed in white. He is the, the priest, quote-unquote. And Ringo's right behind him. He's the undertaker. And then, of course, McCartney is with no shoes, so he is the uh, dead body. And Harrison is behind him, all dressed in denim, and he's the grave digger. So, um, it's funny because when, when I started getting into the Beatles when I was a younger age, my, uh, my uncle had got me into them. He had given me their um, tape of the Past Masters. So I really got into the Beatles. And I started looking them up more. And I started looking at this whole theory. And it's funny because looking back at it now, I did get kind of scared because I was like, is this real? You know, but it's just conspiracy theories. It's just people, you know, going looking at too hard. But yeah, I think this is a really good theory too about um about the whole Paul is dead. We all know Paul McCartney is not dead. So, you know, he's been going strong for almost whatever for how long? For like forever. You know, another thing that the Beatles did uh they're credited as starting the the backmasking mm-hmm. theory. Yeah. You know, that that if you hear the song Rain, which is one of my favorites from them. Yeah, if you listen to the end of that song, uh Lennon recorded a, uh, I guess a back, it's a backward version of his singing, and uh, yeah, that was the start of the whole back masking uh, thing about with rock music and mm-hmm. classic. Rock. And some of the most noticeable back masking is um, "Strawberry Fields Forever." Oh yeah, where the, he says the whole um, was it "I buried Paul." I something? buried Paul, and it's funny because they end up. Debunking and he says cranberry sauce. That's right. Um, there is another one that says, "Oh, Re- uh, Revolution 9. Oh yeah, that's a creepy song. Yeah, that, that was a creepy song. That's off the uh, the White Album, of that's, course. That's that's, that's one of my favorite ones, mm-hmm. my favorite albums. And um, I forgot what what does he say in Revolution Nine? Well, he says a lot. The word n- the number nine, mm-hmm. number nine, number nine, which is also a very iconic number to Lennon. I think that was supposedly his favorite number. And uh, so he, he just, throughout the song, he's just repeating that number nine, number nine, and you hear a lot of other background music. Which one is the uh, the one where he says, turn me on, dead man? That's on, uh, that is on the, uh, that song there. On that one? Yeah, I think it is, turn me on, dead man. And I know they've also hinted at the whole theory, too, in some of their lyrics, I think just to poke fun at the fans. Um, one of the lyrics is in, in Come Together. Mm-hmm. It's, was it one and one and one is three? That's right. Um, got to be good looking because he's so hard to see because I know that, mm-hmm. you know, in the whole theory, Paul had decapitated and you couldn't really, they couldn't really tell it was him. Mm-hmm. So... I know they. I know they. It doesn't really mean all that, but I know they probably just threw it in there just to mess with the fans because I know they've heard the theories before. I don't. Yeah, I, you know that's a good question. I don't know if they intentionally did this. I don't know what their what what their their uh, their point was doing this. But yeah, I mean, there's so many of these in there that yeah, you have to assume that it was a conspiracy that they did it deliberately. But uh, as to why they did it. But see, like I said, this theory didn't come out until 1969 mm-hmm. after they were breaking up. So, you know, why put these clues on these albums and then never let the fans know while they were in existence? Why did it have to happen while they were breaking up? 
So that's that's the oddity of that too. Is I, I never understood why it didn't come up earlier mm-hmm. while they were still around. I mean, who knows? I don't know. I mean, the only maybe it's just all know. coincidences. I don't know. It's a, yeah. It's just a lot of people. Maybe people thinking too much about this stuff. Yeah, a lot of people do think about certain things too much. You know, there, there's been um, even in the Led Zeppelin song "Stairway to Heaven." There's mm-hmm. that whole um, like you were talking about back masking, and back there's masking. a mm-hmm. a message that he says um, something about Satan. I forgot what it was. Yeah, I serve Satan, Satan, my Lord, and all that. Which you know, I don't believe in back masking. I think it's just a lot of people once again. They hear things. It's you hearing know. things, but yeah, and you know when you ever hear anything backwards, it's already creepy anyway. Mm-hmm. Try you know just back when I was a kid, I had my vinyl albums, and I would make it go backward, and it it had that creepy feel to it. So yeah, I mean you hear anything going backwards, and it does already creep you out. And then now on top of that, if you hear something in it, some kind of a message from a rock group, you know that's the thing about rock music. Rock music, it's it kind of promotes that macabre image, that, that the creepy, you know. We, we've had Black Sabbath, Iron Maiden. Alice Cooper. You yes, know. you know, we like that macabre. It, it, it has embraced that kind of Halloween image to it. So, and because of that, because of the, you know, so when you add backmasking, all that, it just makes it even more credible that maybe these artists are doing it intentionally. Yeah. And it's funny not because it's not even rock groups anymore. It's more of these pop and hip hop acts that have these back masking messages. I haven't heard anything lately, but I know that there's a lot of people saying that there's messages in these songs. I will have to go into deeper, but I know that it's not rock music anymore that has the mess the Satan messages. Yeah, I mean anymore. I've even heard people even Christian rock supposedly has it, you know. And it's funny because I I, <laughs> I used to listen when I was younger, so I. <laughs> I don't know. I have. I will look into this more because it's it's a very interesting subject to, and topic to look into because you, it it you know you would never think you would hear praise Satan in a, a Billy Eilish song. You know it's weird. You know you never know. Well, you know Prince did it in one of his songs on Purple Rain. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what song it is now. Um. Uh, yeah. It, it it one of the songs at the end. He you can obviously hear backward singing but it's a positive message mm-hmm. he says something about you know we we love the lord uh we know he's coming hallelujah hallelujah so he was actually making fun kind of poking a little bit fun of the whole negative connotations of back masking but on one of his songs on purple rain you can hear that and it'll come to me here and when it does i'll let y'all know but yeah, yeah. Listen, listen to that song from purple rain and it it, it does have a uh, they have played it forward. I think on YouTube, if you hear it, mm-hmm. I'm sure somebody has posted it on YouTube. They have played it forward, and it's a positive message. Yeah. Uh, rest in peace, Prince. One of the greatest artists out there. Mm-hmm. Um, 27 Club. That's one of like the most notorious clubs you can, exclusive clubs you can be in if you're super famous and rich and all that. Um, some of the most noticeable... If uh, let me look for my notes that I have, some of the most noticeable uh, members of this Twenty Seven Club are, of course, Amy Winehouse. Everybody knows she died of alcohol poisoning, but some might say that she was actually planned, like it was a setup for her to do that because of the whole decline that she was going through. 
and I know that she wanted to get better and she wanted to go to rehab, but I I think it was a setup. You can ask my girlfriend Stephanie. She might say something different. She's all into Amy Winehouse, so we might have to get a little bit more info from her. Uh, another one is Kurt Cobain, of course. He died of suicide. Some say that that was a setup too. That uh, his wife Courtney or his ex-wife Courtney at the time did it. Um, evidence is there. I don't know. She probably did it. He probably did it. Who knows? Um, can you give me another uh, one of the exclusive club as well? Well, um, Robert Johnson. Oh, the yeah, famous, Robert Johnson. Of yeah, that really. That's probably where this whole thing started. It started with Robert Johnson, who was a blues guitarist here in Mississippi. Uh, he was born in 1911. He died in 1925, uh, I think, at the age of 27. So, mm -hmm. And a lot of artists, have, a lot of rock artists have credited him as being influential in their careers. Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin, uh, Keith Richards, they've all cited Robert Johnson as being their top inspiration. I've even heard um, James Hepfield of Metallica said that he's been in. He was kind of like the grandfather of metal, pretty much. I mean, he's the one that kind of started it all for everybody, really. Yeah, and and with Robert Johnson, there comes in this macabre background. Uh, the story goes is that Robert Johnson was an up-and-coming blues guitarist, but wasn't very good, but was not very good, and went around the circles there, but wasn't getting a lot of attention in his community in Mississippi. And so the legend goes is that he went to a, uh, a, a, a plantation area in Mississippi and went to some crossroads, mm -hmm. took his guitar, and basically made a deal with the devil for fame mm -hmm. at, at the crossroads. And sure enough, the legend goes is that he came back from this period of time that he was away, and he started blowing people away with his guitar playing. I mean, you know, he was like, he, he had introduced now a certain type of, of blues that nobody had ever heard. They were blown away by his playing. And um, he died at 27. He was poisoned, apparently. That's the story. He was poisoned by somebody, not too sure. But from there, mm -hmm. the whole 27 club started from, mm -hmm. from there and yeah. proceeded to other. I've heard that story as well, too. Um, I think... Part of the, the story is that if you let the devil tune your guitar, that you've pretty much sold your soul to the devil. And um, there's a, a documentary that came out this year that talks about Robert Johnson and goes a little more behind the scenes in the whole story and about him and about, you know, his um, magical way of playing. And um, some say that he died of, uh, what was it, poisoning or something like that. But some say that the devil just came and just, you know, it's your time. Let's go. You know, your soul is mine. Um, and, you know, that, that whole urban legend is really played up. If you go to Clarksdale, Mississippi, I understand there's a museum there. And they play up this whole crossroads uh, legend yeah, there. It's, 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 so it's, real, it's really well celebrated there. Uh, Jimi Hendrix died at 27. Mm -hmm. Janis Joplin died. Jim Morrison. Brian Jones. Too, yeah. Of yeah. Those Rolling Stones. Yeah. Who so, a lot of people don't actually remember, which is really sad because he was a very uh, foundation member of the Stones. You know, he played the uh, sitar in one of the songs. You know, he was pretty much like the backbone. And 
it was really sad that when he he died you know he died to drown drowning so yeah and see that's another thing that had, that just kind of embellishes this whole these whole stories is that they all died through misadventure mm-hmm. you know drug overdose or whatever in the case of brian jones yeah he he drowned i'm sure he was intoxicated too but yeah i mean and that those kind of those kind of uh, misadventures and those tragic deaths kind of adds to the whole legend of them dying at 27. And I know one of the uh, one of the members of the 27 Club that was very uh, adventurous was Jim Morrison mm-hmm. of the Doors. Um, he died in, in Paris of heart failure. And it's funny because some people say that that was actually a stunt and that he's still alive somewhere. But, I mean, who knows, you know. He was a very crazy individual, but very, very talented. Yeah, yeah. And... Um... And like I said, I don't know why twenty seven comes up as the the age that these people die, but uh, you know that's just just I don't know if it's a coincidence or if that's adds to the urban legend. Yeah, there has to be something about the number twenty seven. You know, some people have actually once again I told you that John Lennon's favorite number was nine. If you mm-hmm. add seven and two together, you get nine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know that that could be part of that too. Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know, but it, it does lead to some interesting conversations. I know we have some fellow Texans in our uh, our Twenty Seven Club, Janis Joplin, who yeah. was born in uh, Port Arthur, mm-hmm. part of the whole um, psychedelic nineteen sixties Woodstock phase. She was really, really, really talented. It's very sad that the way she died too of a drug OD. Uh, another one is, uh, of course, everybody knows in Houston, Fat Pat, the Third Ward. He was murdered, and of course, he was twenty seven. Oh, really? Um, yeah, he was a part of the. Uh, the SUC group screwed up Click and um, also DEA with uh, Doctor Screw. I mean, Doctor Screw. Everyone's gonna criticize me for that. DJ Screw and his brother Big Hawk. You know, everybody knows a Fat Pat. Um, another one I'm not sure if you know is uh, Dash Snow. I don't know if you ever heard of Dash Snow. Uh, I've heard the name. Yeah. Well, he has some Houston ties to him. His uh, maternal grandparents were the Manils of the. Uh, Manil uh, Museum the here museum, in Houston, yeah, yeah. and um, he's also related to uh, the Thurmans, Uma Thurman. Her his maternal grandfather is, um, I forgot his name, but he's related to the Thurmans, and he's related to the Manils. If people do not know about the Manils, they were f- French aristocrats who uh, whose fortune was based in art and oil drilling, and um, it's funny, they also invested in um, Houston's uh, Schulberg, that they do the whole... Uh, drilling equipment that we get our oil and everything and they were also founders of the art collection here in, in Montrose so that, that's pretty interesting he has that kind of tie too you mean Schlumberger? yes there we go okay. I have very yeah Schlumberger <laughs> you may have said it right uh, here in Houston we call it Schlumberger Schlumberger yeah <laughs> and they were based in France so it's funny how French people kind of set the way for oil here in Texas it's funny and um, yeah so we have some you know Houston, Texas ties to that. Um, anything else you want to talk about? I know you talked about Led Zeppelin and that there's some interesting stories with Led Zeppelin. Yeah, yeah, there's the uh, Led Zeppelin curse that also has to deal with the occult and, and the paranormal. Um, the story goes is that Jimmy Page really got involved in the 70s uh, into the occult, really was fascinated by it and went as far as to buy uh, Aleister Crowley's palace or mansion. Now, Alistair Crowley was a uh, a magician. He was into the occult in England. 
uh, I think, what, in the early 1900s, 1800s. And he also appears on the uh, Sgt. Pepper album cover. Yes, I've seen that. He's also one of the figures there. So, uh, yeah, the, the Jimmy Page bought his mansion in the early 70s. And so after that, uh, a lot of tragic things started happening to the members of Led Zeppelin. Um, Robert Plant, their singer, was in a really uh, horrible car accident, and he almost lost his life, and as well as his child and his wife. And he was in a wheelchair for a while. Uh, when they recorded the Presence album, he recorded in a wheelchair. So that happened to him. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was in a wheelchair when he recorded that album, and um, Jimmy Page really got into heroin big time at that time. He was uh, he was an addict. And apparently he went into a coma. Luckily they revived him, but yeah, because of that, you know, he almost lost his life. And I know he was, uh, story goes that he did some music for a satanic movie, I think that's what it was. Yeah, something about Lucifer Rising. Mm -hmm. That there's, Yeah, there was a story too that supposedly the, I think the producers or the director had approached him to do the music and it didn't happen. And so also that also adds to the curse mm -hmm. is that the... Producers of the directors cursed Jimmy Page for not, you know, helping them with the soundtrack. And it's funny because I, uh, me and my cousin, shout out to my cousin Josh, uh, my uncle who was an ex-pastor or preacher, he uh, didn't like the idea of us being into rock music, which is really weird because he liked Santana and Black Sabbath. And so he thought we were just being very devilish. So he showed us this tape. It was called Hell's Bells, and it was telling about the, all the satanic stuff and rock and roll music. And when it got to the story about Jimmy Page and doing the, the music for Lucifer's Rising, that's what really freaked me out because just they showed some of the clips of the movie and just the whole, just, it really freaked me out. I did not sleep all that, that hmm. whole night. But um, I know one of the members that got affected was John Bonham. Yeah, yeah, he died what 1980. Mm -hmm. Once again, of uh, drug overdose, drinking, that kind of thing. Yeah, he died in 1980, and after that, the band really just kind of broke up. Yeah. Now another tragic thing that happened to them, we haven't touched base, is that Robert Plant lost his son inexplicably. Uh, right after uh, the Presence album, uh, his son, young son, I guess his son was about five years old. He died just inexplicably. Uh, Plant was on tour here in the United States with Led Zeppelin and he got a call that his son was ill and he died, passed away. And there's some weird kind of things there too. If you ever look at their album, Houses of the Holy, mm -hmm. um, that was an album that came out I think in 1973 and on the album cover there's children on their album cover and they're very blonde, very light-skinned. Now Robert Plant's son was like that. If you've ever seen the movie, uh, the song remains the same. It was kind of like a documentary that followed them. Mm -hmm, There's an early portion where you see Robert Plant's family. They're at his ranch, and one of his children is there, and you remember the child is blonde mm -hmm. and very light-complected. Uh, it's very reminiscent of the album cover from Houses of the Holy. And when you open up the album cover, uh, you see what appears to be one of the adult's of this group holding up a child like in a, like almost like a like sacrificing mm -hmm. this child's body so it's very ironic to see that image 
and then to know that in, in a few years he was going to lose his son who looks like those children from Houses of the Holy. Yeah, this arts in the 70s were really crazy with some of these artworks. Yeah, they really went out all out, and yeah, some of the artwork was really elaborate, and yeah, it really makes you think. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing I kind of miss now, too, is that the album covers. You know, we're in CDs now. Even that now, are we even into Did, CDs? I mean, CDs are pretty much gone now. What they're doing is digital downloads, and it's, it's sad, too, that, you know, to think that our future generations will never be able to hold a CD and, you know, look at it. I remember when I first got my first tape, my first cassette tape, and that was something special, you know. I And when I got older, I bought my first CD. My first two CDs were Van Halen and um, Steve Ray Vaughn's Texas Flood, R.I.P. Stevie Ray. Um, but, yeah, it's sad that they'll never get to hold that physical copy in their hands, and it's just digital. I mean, I love digital, you know. But I also love having that hard copy. And it's funny, too, that vinyl's coming back in a way, too. Their, their sales have been better than CD sales. It's crazy. And I, I like the whole thing that we're going back retro. Really do, they, cool. do they sell these vinyls with album covers on them? Yeah, it's, still... it's pretty much like the um, reissue of the album cover. Okay. So it's the same thing and everything. You see, yeah, and for me, growing up, the album cover, too, added to it enhanced the music listening. Mm -hmm. I would open it up and look at the images on there. So it would add to my listening experience of that album. So like you, yeah, I missed that. That whole, that whole art, the album cover art mm -hmm. that was on there yeah um well let's take it back a little bit we talked about the beatles we talked about you know 27 club we talked about you know led zeppelin let's talk about um a person that we know here in texas too uh, buddy holly oh and, yeah and that heck that curse um i i know you know a little bit about the curse can you tell me a little bit more about the curse yeah it's one of my favorites actually i i, I love hearing about it i just learned about it some years ago on that talk show coast to coast am and i really liked it the story goes is that uh, in england in the late 50s there was a gentleman named joe meek mm -hmm. and he was an upcoming record producer sound engineer and uh kind of a contemporary to george martin of the beatles and so he was, uh, he recorded a few hits. Uh, actually, the first, it's, he is credited with producing the first number one song in America from an English group. Mm -hmm. It was an instrumental, it was called Telstar. But yeah, even before the Beatles, he had produced a, uh, a number one hit from an English band in America. So he had a couple of hits and he was producing a few bands here and there. He also, but he, there was also a darker side to him. He was a, uh, he was involved. He was uh, obsessed with uh, communicating with the dead. He was into that kind of thing. Since he was a sound engineer, mm -hmm. he would set up tape. The story go, he would set up tape recorders in cemeteries or, or different places to see if he could hear, the dead communicating back to him, and he would conduct seances as well. So he was very, he was very involved in that. But he was also uh, very fascinated by Buddy Holly, loved Buddy Holly's music, and uh, was was really enjoyed it, and and tried to I think even tried to get to produce some of his music, but it didn't mm -hmm. happen. And by the way, jo Joe Meek also had an opportunity to produce the Beatles. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. 
but the story goes is that when he was approached by Brian Epstein, mm-hmm. hey, what do you think about these guys? Joe Meek said, nah, I'm not interested. These guys are not going anywhere. Well, he missed that opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> and supposedly also he had an opportunity to record, uh, record uh, Rod Stewart. Oh, wow, Rod Stewart. Yeah, but the story goes there too is that uh, he was hearing Rod Stewart in the recording studio and he went in and closed his ears up and said, no. No, you ain't going nowhere. <laughs> so those are two mistakes that he made in his career. Imagine, yeah, if he had produced the Beatles. Oh, wow, yeah. Where, that he, where he would have gone. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah, and he was kind of like that. He was that kind of an innovator with sound. Mm-hmm. You know, he was willing to, you know, any little any little noises like that, he would record, you know, he would experiment. Kind of like with uh, Brian Wilson and the Wall of Sound. It, and exactly, all that that's yeah. right, that's right. He was credited with kind of like the Wall of Sound. They had like, uh, right, in England they had a different kind of movement. Mm-hmm. Like Phil Spector had, in America, he had the Wall of Sound with Brian Wilson. In England, Joe Meek and George Martin, they were also developing a certain sound mm-hmm. in England. So they were kind of competing yeah. with that. Anyway, so let's get back to Joe Meek and his fascination with Buddy Holly and communicating with the dead. Uh we're going. Let's go back to the late fifties here, and the story goes is that Joe Meek was involved in a séance, and in this séance, he received a message from the other side that Buddy Holly would die on February the third. So of course he got very distraught about it and went approached Buddy Holly and said, "Buddy, avoid February the third. You know something bad's going to happen to you." Mm-hmm. So Buddy Holly kind of like blew it off and said, okay, whatever. And lo and behold, February 3rd came and went. Nothing happened to Buddy Holly. Now, this was the year 1958. Mm -hmm. So Buddy Holly went on. And, of course, the next year on February the 3rd, 1959, he crashed in a plane with uh, Richie Valens. And the Big Bopper. Right. So Joe Meek had the day right but didn't have the year right. Mm Mm-hmm. So uh, he was very distraught that Buddy Holly had died and passed away. Well, Joe Meek, in those later years, in the 60s, he, his career kind of went downhill. He got into debt and depression, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so happens that he shot his land, landlady and himself in 1967, February the 3rd. So eight years to the day that Buddy Holly died, mm-hmm. he committed suicide and killed his landlady. He went oh, into like he went mad. That's a coincidence. Yeah, a he went into madness. He just and, and had a yeah, and said shot his landlady and then shot himself on the exact day that Buddy Holly died, February third. So perhaps a message he got from the other side too, yeah. would have been for him too. <laughs> right. Uh, I don't know if you know this uh, story about but I know Buddy Holly and Waylon Jones were really close friends, you know. And um, story goes is that they were hanging out, drinking a beer and stuff like that. And Buddy had told Waylon something. And Waylon, uh, Waylon replied, well, I hope your plane crashes. And, like, I think it was that, I think it was Damn. on that day. And not even a couple hours later, he ended up crashing. Damn. And that kind of um, affected Waylon because he felt like he was the one responsible for that. So I don't know if you've heard that story. Yeah, I think I have. Now that you bring that up, I kind of remember something hearing about that. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure Waylon, obviously he regretted saying that. And and he actually, what, he passed away, what, just some years ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, he lived a longer life than, than Buddy Holly. And he was supposed to be on that plane too, right? Yeah, he was supposed to be on that plane. And, and he, I think he took the, well, he got sick, I think. The story goes that he was sick with the flu, and so he took the bus, the tour bus, to their next gig. And then I think that's when Richie Valens jumped mm -hmm. on. He said, I, I want to get to our place faster. Let me jump on the plane with Buddy Holly. And that, that day is credited as the day the music died. Right. That. Yeah, people say music changed. And it's really weird that airplane and rock and roll stars kind of go hand in hand. Um, I know you know how the whole Leonard Skinner thing. Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, that that plane crash. Um, do you know a little more info about that? I know, but I, I feel like you know a little bit more. Not really. Supposedly, if you look at their album cover, right? I think the how is it their album cover? Their last album cover. I can't remember the name of it now. Second serving or second helpings, something mm -hmm. like that. They're standing in front of a fire, like a big, huge fire mm -hmm. behind them. And some people think that that's the plane crash. You yeah, because most of them didn't make it out. I mean, a few did, but a, a lot of them didn't really make it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I think one of the last surviving members passed away not that long ago. I think it was the guitarist. Yeah. Um, another famous plane crashing is the one of Steve Ray Vaughan in 1998. Um, Right or ninety one, was that a helicopter crash? Or? It was a helicopter crash, but I guess we can kind of throw it in that. Now, how know, old was Stevie Ray Vaughan when he died? He was in his mid thirties. Okay, so he wasn't twenty seven. No, he was not twenty seven. But the story goes is that he played a uh, show in Colorado, I think, mm -hmm. and that they were supposed to go, or he was tired. He wanted to go back to his hotel, but it was meant to be for Eric Clapton. But Eric Clapton was like, no, just go ahead. You're tired. Just go home. You know, I, I, I'll take whatever else. So he ended up taking that spot, and he ended up crashing um, mm. a couple hours later. Mm. So I know that, that kind of affected Eric Clapton as well because it, it kind of felt like it was meant for him too. But um, yeah, it's really weird that these airplanes and helicopters go, you know, with rock stars. It's funny. Um, I've heard a saying that the... Um, was it the, the sky is for the stars, you know, mm -hmm. and my dad would tell me that and he would like, you know, the rock stars, you know, up there, mm -hmm. you know, like Leonard Skinner and Buddy Holly and all them. So it, it's really weird that they go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I know that we have some local stories here in Houston, not rock stories, but I know we have some local um, legends and stuff like that. Can you touch on some of them? Well... I don't know. Like, give me some. Give me. Give me like some. Like I know leads, we. Uh, my favorite one is about the the goat man or the. Uh, oh, you want to get into the haunted tours now? Some of the, yeah. Let's some, get let's get into some of the some, some of, of the sites stuff. that we that I that I visit or get guests out there. Okay, um, yeah. There's a road out in uh, near Channelview called Ban Road, and it's a deserted road. It's really kind of desolate, and it curves around. And it stretches for about two miles. And it goes under, um, what's the name of that highway out there? I can't remember now. And the story goes, well, back in the 70s and the 80s, there was sightings of the goat man, which is a half man and a half goat. The top portion of, of him is, is a goat, and, and the bottom portion is a man. And uh, if you ever drive down Van Road, it is kind of creepy out there. It, a lot of it still is still uh, wooded. Mm-hmm. There's there's some development now. There's been development there, but but there's still some stretches on it that are that are um, that are wooded, 
and it leads to, uh, I think, to the San Jacinto River as it feeds into uh, the Gulf. But uh, the story goes, yeah, that if you go back in there, you, there's been some sightings of the goat man, and the goat man has been see, see, uh, seen in other areas of the country. I think up in Dallas, there's a goat man's bridge mm-hmm. that if you go up there at night, you can see him as well. So, yeah, Houston is not the only area where the goat man has been seen. So, yeah, we've we've driven down there, and, and uh, it can get pretty creepy down there at night. It does. There's a lot of uh, roads here in Houston that are kind of creepy, too, you know. Yeah, the other one is Patterson Road. Uh, it's up in Bear Creek Park. Mm-hmm. It, it goes right into the middle of Bear Creek Park, and it's a stretch of, it's just a, a straight road that connects uh, two other ones. And it goes in the middle of, of Bear Creek Park, which is a huge park. I've been to Bear Creek. It's, it's really huge. And so if you ever drive through there at night, there's a couple of cemeteries in there already. So, oh, really? Yeah, there's a, they call it the uh, the, blue li- uh, the Blue Light Cemetery. Oh, okay. Because people claim that they've seen blue lights emanating from the grave sites over there. But, yeah, there was a community there. And so they had a, they had a, a, a cemetery there. And uh, it's still in the park. And I've actually taken people in. You can go in there, and we can actually get to the cemetery itself. Mm-hmm. But uh, on Patterson Road, if you drive down it and you go to a bridge, the story goes that if you park your car there and you turn off your lights and you, at night, uh, you'll hear tapping on your car. Mm-hmm. And some people attribute it to uh, Civil War soldiers that are passing through there. The legend goes is that there was some kind of a Civil War uh, skirmish there with uh, Union soldiers and uh, the community that was there who were uh, more sympathetic to the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. When I've researched the, uh, the story, I find no credibility to it. There was, no, there was no skirmish there. So whatever people are hearing there is probably not Union soldiers marching by. I don't know what it is. <laughs> Somebody's wild imaginations. <laughs> yeah. But that's a good stretch of land, a road there, because it's dark too. It's in a it's in a wooded area, and it's really neat to to go through there. At I know night. a lot of people jog there, so if you go and jog through, go through Patterson Road, check it out. And, and by the way, I recommend that you never go to these sites alone. Mm-hmm. Don't ever go alone because uh, when I do these tours, we have actually encountered real uh, perils there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we run into some people there. Uh, maybe some homeless people there, you know, some people that are just wandering, real people. They're not ghosts. I know that because I could touch them. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, don't go through there at night alone, please. Mm-hmm. Don't do this alone. This is uh, this, These places are desolate, remote. So you don't want to be out in remote places at night. Yeah, you heard them. Don't do it. Don't try to be a hero. No, look me up. I'll take you through there. And I recommend that we go in groups. We know, you know, like I said, it's... Uh, Strength in numbers. Exactly. Yeah, the tour I'm doing tonight is going to be 12 persons, so I feel more comfortable with that. Uh, I like the the UFO story that you told at the uh, oh, yeah. that was a really interesting. Yeah, the, one the, too. the Cash Landrum incident. That's a really good story too. It's one of my favorite UFO stories. And once again, I don't believe in UFOs coming down. I don't. I did a lot of reading on them, but I'm not convinced that they're coming down to visit us. But one, I love these stories again. The Cash Landrum story goes is that Betty Cash and Vicky Landrum, uh, they were mother and uh, daughter and mother-in-law, 
and they lived up near um, Crosby, Texas, and um, up towards, you know, uh, north of us, mm -hmm. up there. And this happened in 1980, December of 1980, where they were coming from uh, from one little town, and they were coming back to Crosby, or Dayton. They were going to Dayton back, and they were coming back from a bingo night, and they came, they went down a road, and when they got down this road, they saw this object that was kind of like bouncing up and down, a huge light lit object, like almost like a large balloon mm -hmm. that was just bouncing up and down the air, and it would emulate some kind of, radiate some kind of fire or radiation from it, and it would push back up, and it was, it looked like it was like in, it wasn't distraught. It would look like it was kind of like having trouble staying up. Mm -hmm. And the story goes is that it went actually over their car and it showered them with radiation and that kind of thing. And what makes this story even more intriguing is that they claim that they saw uh, 12 Chinook helicopters escorting this object as it went into the woods and they never saw it again. And uh, they tried to sue the federal government for, for their damages. Apparently, they, they developed skin cancer, mm -hmm. and their car was also uh, damaged from the radiation from this object that was bouncing up and down over them. But the, uh, it was dismissed. There was, no, there was lack of evidence for that. They have passed away, but the son is still alive. The, little, the, the, the son, he's, uh, he's got to be probably not in his 40s. His name was Kobe. Kobe Landrum, mm -hmm. and uh, he still, to this day, says it happened. I was there. I saw it with my mother and my grandmother. But it was a famous case. It, it, it was well-documented uh, nationally, and there's been some coverage about it. I know that Unsolved Mysteries, the old television show, they did a segment on it, and, uh, yeah, there's been other UFO documentaries that have covered it, so it's, it, is, it is the most well-known UFO incident in the Houston area. It's called the Piney Woods UFO incident. Piney mm Woods. -hmm. It's funny because um, just recently, a lot of people have been into UFOs. Um, I don't know if you've heard, but there was a uh, a group of people that well, this one guy made a, a group page on Facebook to raid Area Fifty One, <laughs> and uh, he didn't think it was serious. He put it out there just as a joke, but it, it kind of took wind and it snowballed into uh, what we call a, a meme, and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's funny that it actually went through. Yeah, there was groups of just hundreds of people out there. It was really insane um, that, it, it, that these people were like, they think that aliens exist. I mean, me personally, I don't know. We are just a small dot in a big universe so who knows what else god made out there there might be aliens who knows we, we may never know until we pass on to the other side sure. and ask him but it's funny that this whole alien uh um interest has sparked our generation um everybody knows about tom DeLong, the uh, ex-lead singer of blink 182 he um pretty much left the band just to go and um um, you know UFOs and just research about aliens and he has a show on the History Channel that talks about that and um, just recently I think the US government had said that he had released some pictures that shouldn't have been released that kind of prove that there are existence out there and it, it, 
he was like, well, I'm right, you know, because um, if everybody knows the story, he left Blink-182. Well, he didn't leave, but while he was in Blink-182, he got very interested in aliens and UFOs that it affected his his work, of course. Every, um, there's a song out there called Aliens Exist and, uh, on one of their albums. And it kind of took a toll on his life. And it pretty much was like, it's either us or your crazy UFO stories. So he chose them. And it's funny that he's been proven right. <laughs> well, you know, Sammy Hagar. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, of course, that's another story. He claims that he was abducted by an alien. Yeah, I don't know too much about it, but I've heard of, I've heard yeah, he claims that he's been abducted. I mean, he probably was. I mean, he's he's kind of <laughs> and, crazy, you know. I don't know how serious he is, but yeah, he claims that. And you know, John Lennon had a UFO incident too, a famous one. Oh, really? I didn't I didn't know yeah, about that. Yeah, this was about 1975 while he was in New York. In New York. Okay. Yeah. He uh, had broken up with Yoko Ono, and he was with another lady. And uh the story goes is that uh he was looking out of his balcony and saw a UFO, and it hovered there for a while, and he got his girlfriend to go out there, and they, they both saw it, and he claimed it was pretty big, pretty big, and I think he said he saw windows or something in it, and it was big, enough, it was close enough that he could see the windows on mm. it, and what's that song he does, uh, what's that, nobody ever told me there would be days like this, that John Lennon, okay, he, mm-hmm. he says, there's, a, there's a, a lyric in there, he says, there's UFOs over New York. But I ain't too surprised. And that's because he, he's alluding to the UFO that he claimed he saw while he was in New York. We actually, when we went to New York uh, last week, we actually went by the Dakota. Mm-hmm. That's where he was shot. That's where he was shot. And there's like a, a driveway that goes into the plaza of, of the Dakota. And it was, it, it kind of made me, ch- it was some chills going up there. And we took a picture of the, where he got shot. I asked the doorman, "Is that this is where John Lennon got shot?" He said, "Yeah, yeah, that's where he was at." That's it's really crazy, you know, just to like be in that same exact exact spot where one of the most influential musicians and artists was taken away from us because of some crazy guy. Mm-hmm. And um, I know you said that some people say that they see his ghost or something like yeah, that. Yeah, actually the Dakota people have claimed that they've seen his ghost there. Yeah, uh, that's uh that's one of the haunted places yes of his is there. Um another interesting thing about that building is I don't know if you know of a movie called Rosemary's Baby. Yes. Okay, it came out like in 1969. It was directed by Roman Polanski. And uh, this movie, this current movie that Quentin Tarantino did called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood touches upon Roman Polanski and his wife, Sharon Tate, mm-hmm. who was murdered by Charles Manson. Um, Rosemary's Baby was filmed at the Dakota. And there's a scene in there where uh, somebody flies out of the window and dies, and supposedly that the same place where John Lennon got shot. Ten years later, oh, wow, wow! Yeah, there's that. There's that. Once again, that synchronicity there, that weird synchronicity of that movie and John Lennon, where they were both killed right there at mm-hmm. that at that Dakota hotel. Um, but yeah, this, supposedly he, he haunts that that building. They, they've seen his spirit That's moving around. I didn't, there. I didn't know that. And it's funny too that a lot of movies. Like in the early 70s and uh, mid 80s, they were 
quote-unquote cursed like the exorcist mm -hmm. i know you know about that one mm -hmm. um there was another movie that was cursed well like rosemary's called. baby yeah rosemary's baby and, and the, the omen the, oh, yeah, right yeah. right rosemary's baby because sure enough sharon tate was going to be murdered you know later on by charles manson sharon tate was married to roman polanski they were expecting too oh wow so yeah, some people said that that movie was cursed, and, and and it came out with the murder of Sharon Tate. That's crazy. That's a weird. weird yeah, I've heard of this. The Exorcist being cursed. Uh, uh, there's a funny one too, and I can't remember the, the the. It's the John. I don't know if it's really like a John Belushi curse. Oh yeah. John yeah. Candy mm -hmm. and and Chris Farley. Mm -hmm. Is it Chris Farley? I. The, the so. heavy set comedian guy, mm -hmm. he was real hyper, you mm -hmm. know. Okay. In the van down by the river. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, there is a, a there's a, a legend that there was a movie that was written about Eskimos, Native Americans, mm -hmm. and it was supposed to be like a it was supposed to be funny and it was supposed to kind of like make fun of them a little bit, and they uh, supposedly they cursed the movie. And the story goes is that the, the, the first actor who was approached to play this role in the movie was John Belushi. Well, he died mm -hmm. in 82. And then the story goes is that they approached John Candy. And he read the script and was interested, and he died. Mm -hmm. And then years later, the, the script was still floating around Hollywood, and it went to Chris Farley, and he died. Mm -hmm. So now nobody wants to touch that script, and the movie wasn't. I wouldn't. I mean, <laughs> the movie weird. wasn't made. But yeah, that's the story that that these three stars died because of a of a of a movie that mm -hmm. uh, was was supposedly cursed. Yeah, there's a lot of movies that have been cursed. I, it's too many to get into. <laughs> Um, the Poltergeist is also was cursed too. That was that was an interesting movie. Oh, that's too. right. Yeah, the actors. Yeah, many of the actors have died, or they mm -hmm. died shortly after they made it. Right, the little girl. Mm -hmm. the, I know that uh, was it. I think the bones that they had in one of the scenes were actually real. So, well, you know that 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 movie that movie was based on a, uh, a local incident. Really? Yeah, up in Crosby, and and there's a neighborhood there. My God, I, 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 I can't remember it now. But there was a neighborhood that was built over a, a cemetery mm -hmm. in Crosby. And uh, people were claiming that their homes were haunted by the, the spirits that they, that they uh, you know, they disturbed. And, and because of that, Poltergeist movie was made. I think it was called the, the cemetery was called Black Hope Cemetery. Mm -hmm. So any of your listeners want to research, I think it's called Black Hope Cemetery in Crosby, and you can read about that whole legend and the curse and how it ties into poltergeist. Mm -hmm. And it's really it's crazy. I didn't know about that either. I didn't know it was based off of that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that actress, who was that actress that came out in Poltergeist? She was the the uh, the middle child, or she, no, she was the older child in the movie, and she was murdered by her her boyfriend oh. shortly after the movie. Ooh. So that was yeah, that was part of the curse, the poltergeist curse too. Is that yeah? She uh, she was murdered by her her boyfriend. That's crazy. And I know they just remade the movie, so hopefully that curse doesn't move over to that one. <laughs> um, what else can we talk about? Uh, well, I know 
a lot of uh, macabre have been introduced into comic books as well. I know we have some uh, scary figures like uh, Ghost Rider. Of course, that's another one. Uh, he sells he sells his soul to the devil, and he ends up becoming the Ghost Rider for him. Mm -hmm. uh, Doctor Strange also deals with that too. Uh, that's one of my favorite characters. Um, do you have a favorite character that deals kind of like with that? Not really with Macabre. Uh, yeah, I do have my favorite characters. I like Spider-Man. I like uh, Batman, uh, Wolverine, you know, those guys. But none of them really that are Macabre mm -hmm. to me catch my... Swamp Thing. Oh, yeah, Swamp Thing, of course. Swamp yeah. Thing has a lot of... He has a lot of Macabre imagery in his, uh, in his background. Uh, even Batman. Uh, I remember reading some early Batman comic books, and there was they were trying to, in the early '70s, they were trying to put more of, push that out there. Push yeah. that out, yeah, and that came out more prevalent in the in the late '60s and the early '70s in comic books, where there was this fascination with the occult, as it was everywhere at that time in our music and mm -hmm. movies, and it, it went into the comic books as well. So when I was reading comic books as a kid. There were stories of witches or, or ghosts or demons and the superheroes battling those forces. And I know one of them is, uh, is Raven, too, from Teen Titans. She deals with all that, too. And um, mm -hmm. the DC um, TV show Teen Titans kind of touches on that and how she gets her powers and that. So it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, well, um, that was very interesting, some of the stories that we were talking about. Uh, before we end our show... Since we talked about music, I want to get your thoughts and opinions on um, the Abbey Road album that we talked about. Mm -hmm. It's the 50th anniversary, and um, tell me how that album has affected you. Or I mean, I know how the Beatles affected you, but it, has that album affected you anyway? Like how you listen to music and you know certain things like that. Yeah, the, their their music and that one that one was a really well produced album. If you listen to it, it's right up there with Sgt. Pepper. I mean, the, 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 the production is very crisp, and, and the placement of the microphones w w was done really well. You can hear every little bit in those songs on those two albums. So, yeah, I mean, when I hear those albums, I appreciate the production on them. Uh, and you hear those albums, and you hear other music of that day, and that's, that those songs don't don't compare. I mean, you, you, you would think that music is was done today. Mm -hmm. It was so well produced and so crisp and so brilliant that it doesn't sound like from the '60s. You know, when I hear their music, it doesn't sound like '60s music. I don't I don't consider them a '60s band. They have transcended that for me, and so that whole their whole music does that to me. It transcends it. I don't think of them as rock artists. I don't think of, you know, they're, they're beyond that to me. Because, they, they, yeah, that, that's true. I mean, so many of Jonah generations have had the Beatles in each of their lives, you know, in the 70s and the 80s. So it's true that they're not just a 60s band. They've transcended through music and through time. And, and you know, and, and another thing, you know, I, I always, and I've always, when I've, when I've analyzed my music listening or what I like, I've always noticed it has to be a, a good bass line. Mm -hmm. And the Beatles had the bass line. If you listen to Paul McCartney's bass playing, it's brilliant. It's excellent. And it was innovative. And it was cutting edge and it, it set the tone for the way other ba bass players would be listened to from their end. So 
when I listen to their music, yeah, it's it's the bass playing that I hear too. Some of the bass parts that I, I've liked from Paul McCartney was uh, Paperback Writer. Oh, that's if you, a beautiful if, song. I, if you listen to it, you could hear some him just going yeah. through the whole neck and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Rain, Rain, Rain too has too. a beautiful bass line on it. Really nice. Come together, uh-huh. uh, Taxman. Paul McCartney was really. Well, he's what well, he is a really, really good bass player and a really, really good. He's yeah. perfectionist, quote unquote. He was. I actually think he's underrated as a bass player. I mean, when yeah. We, when we think of bass players, we don't think of Paul McCartney because he's so, up. You know, he's so. I guess I don't know. But I don't know what to say. But he's top tier. <laughs> yeah, you know, we don't. But we don't think of him. But he is a, a, an excellent bass player. You know, and he's not some of those bass players like at the time where they just kind of just stood there and just plucked at one, two strings. Now he kind of. Just went through, and it's funny because he wasn't even meant supposed to be to play the bass. He was a guitar player, mm-hmm. and their bass player at the time, um, Stuart, um, I guess he had left the band to pursue art, mm-hmm. and of course he had passed away. And McCartney took his spot, so he kind of Stu Sutcliffe. Yeah, there we go, and um, kind of took his playing and transcended into bass, which helped out and kind of was the backbone to a lot of the songs. Yeah, so. That, yeah, he's. I think he's very underrated as a as a bass yeah. player. Yeah, and you know, and he put he he put the main, he made the bass a forefront instrument that wasn't done before. Mm-hmm. He made the he made the bass now an integral important instrument to hear in pop music, and also the drums too. I mean, Ringo Ringo was very simple, mm-hmm. but he kept the beat and it well, like him and McCartney were there just the foundation of the song. Mm-hmm. You know. If one slips, it, the whole song was just, you know, ruined. Yeah, people kind of, they kind of make poke fun of Ringo. But yeah, some of his drumming is really good, really intricate. And uh, it, it really fit well with the band. And he has said that. He said, you know, I'm not a, I, I just follow as a drummer. I'm not a, I'm not a, a drummer. I, do, I don't do solos. I don't mm-hmm. like doing solos. I like to just accompany. And that's what I was there for. I accompany the other guys. You know, and so that that was his purpose, and he really did it well. Yeah, I I love some of his drumming. I love it actually on the Abbey Road album, the Golden Slumbers melody, mm-hmm. where he does the little things on the tom uh on the bass. Oh, whatever you know. Mm-hmm. I'm not really a drummer. I'm more of a guitarist, mm-hmm. but I love his drum part in the in the melodies. And uh, yeah, so uh, he's Listen. one of the most influential drummers out there. You wouldn't think because I mean he just you know very simple, keeps with the beat, not. Like you said, he doesn't do solos. He doesn't. He's not a Keith Moon. So, mm-hmm. but he's very influential into a lot of what we have now too. Actually, yeah. Listen to a Day in the Life. The drumming is really good. It's it's real subtle, but it's it's back there. But if you hear it, it's really good. Mm-hmm. Really good. And I think his favorite drumming on a Beatles song was Ron Rain. He said he has said that that was his favorite drumming. So listen to that song too. And listen to the drumming on that, and you get an idea of what kind of a drummer he is. Yeah, you can kind of pinpoint too his drumming. Mm-hmm. If you listen to um, and like, you can of course the Beatles songs. Um, there's some songs he actually didn't play on that I, I heard that McCartney actually took in play. So you yeah. can kind of tell yeah. that it wasn't him. But there, yeah, if you look at some of the songs that he's featured on, you can tell it's Ringo because he has that certain style and that certain sound. So it's. It's really amazing how you can just pinpoint, you know, somebody like that. Mm-hmm. Same thing with um, um, Harrison too, George Harrison, and the way he played was very different. Some of the players, because he was, um, I guess, more of a lead, but he kind of did rhythm, 
and just the way that he recorded and the way he wrote some of the songs kind of fit that style too of the Beatles because then he was the youngest member. Yeah, once again too, you know, he uh, when we think of top guitarists, we don't think of him necessarily. We think of Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, Santana, Santana, yeah. Uh, George Harrison, it, it, we don't think of him either like that. But yeah, when, he was also an accomplished guitarist as well. He's actually one of my favorite Beatles. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of people pick McCartney or they pick Lennon. Mm -hmm. Nobody really picks Ringo, which is really sad. But <laughs> I pick Harrison because he just, I see myself in him. You know, I'm I'm a guitarist too, but the way he his personality came through, his music was is just very inspiring, and that's what I inspire to be like George Harrison. You know, so and he's you're not alone. I mean, some people said some of the best music they did was theirs. I mean, uh, John Lennon had he has said that uh, his favorite song on the Abbey Road album was something. Oh yeah, something's a very very which was written song. by George Harrison. So yeah, I mean, you're not alone. I mean, there's people out there who think he did some of the better songwriting. Here comes the sun. And some of his solo work after the Beatles was really good too. So um, yeah, actually, I think he had the first hit after they broke up from the from the former Beatles. He had the first number one of them. Well, yeah, I think he's the better Beatle. I mean, somebody you can criticize me, but I think he's the better Beatle. <laughs> um, speaking of Beatles, I know there's the whole fifth Beatle discussion. Yeah. Who's the fifth Beatle? Yeah. You know, there's there's Pete Bass, there's there's Stu. Um, who is the uh, the name of the one that's from Houston, actually? Billy Preston. There you go, Billy Preston. I'm yeah, I forgot about yeah. that. He's actually considered as the fifth Beatle. Yeah, he had a couple of hits in the early 70s. And you can tell some of his work on Abbey Road, too. But yeah, he played the that. keyboard. Oh, so yeah, it's hear, very... If you hear the keyboard on there, yeah, that, that's Billy Preston. Abbey Road, yeah. Much of the Abbey Road album has his keyboard in it. Uh, I think on Let It Be, he also had the, the keyboard in that song, mm -hmm. too. So, yes. Was he on the rooftop? No. No, he, no, he wasn't? No, he wasn't. He wasn't. He never, I don't think he ever appeared with them mm -hmm. live, you know, as a band. Uh, the story goes that Lennon actually invited him to become a Beatle because they were already breaking up. Mm -hmm. There was already some animosity in the group, and they were... So to kind of put a shot into the, the system... Lennon asked uh, Billy Preston, join us. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't think, that, of course, it didn't happen. But yeah, he's been credited as a fifth Beatle. And he's from Houston, actually. Yep. So that's pretty cool that we have, you know, a, a fellow Houstonian who worked with such a great group. Yeah, like I said, he had a couple of hits on his own mm -hmm. uh, in the early 70s. But uh, yeah, yeah, he was a fifth Beatle. George Martin was also considered a fifth Beatle. Oh, yes. Course, and, and Brian Epstein, too, a little bit. They kind of credit him. I don't think the Beatles would have gotten anywhere without George Martin, though. I think the producing would really mm -hmm. turn the corner for them. They had the talent, they were in a they were in the right time in the right place, but it was the production that they needed to make them to transcend them to what they are now. So, yeah, I think George Martin definitely, if it wasn't if he wasn't in there, he hadn't been in there, I don't think they would have gotten the success yeah. that they did. I mean, if they would have had another just producer, I think the Beatles would have kind of just been, eh, you know, but like you said, George Martin inspired to be more and saw the better in them and just took their music to indefinite heights. Mm -hmm. And uh, I appreciate what he did, you know, and what he continues to do with, through his son too, I think also does yeah, stuff like son, that. His son still he, does um, 
I think he had a hand in the the whole mix of the 2019 uh, mix of the whole the Abbey remastered. Road. The remastered, which is really good because it's it's still crisp and clean. You can hear every instrument. It's really really amazing. Yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah I love the Beatles. <laughs> Great. Yeah. So um, as we um, close, I want to thank you. Mr. Varela, for being on our show. Thank you for having me. It's been an being honor. my first guest. Yeah, good luck on this. I uh, I, I wish you well on this. Uh, I'll support you, and I'll be listening to you all the time. I, I enjoy these podcasts. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Thank you. And it's funny because I have not once called you Uncle Chris <laughs> the whole show. So I've kept my professionalism. No, let's don't let yeah, Chris is fine for right now. We don't want to put that little creepy vibe to it, even though we've been talking about yeah. creepy things. So, well, yes, thank you. Uh, I appreciate the whole support. And, uh, yeah. you know, I wouldn't be doing this without the support of my friends and family mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So uh, thank you. Yeah. So as we close Inside the North Side, thank you for tuning in. And as I always say, God bless and peace.